kicked it off, and he talked about making relationships outside the church. Um, it, it's kind of hard to, to reach people that need the Lord if you don't ever get to where there are people that need the Lord. And uh, it is so important that we, we, we create those relationships outside of our comfort zone. And I'll talk a little bit about that uh, later. But it, it is so important. And then he touched on a few things about teaching home Bible studies. And then last week, Brother Perryman came and gave the second part of that Equip 240 seminar. And uh, Brother, Brother Perryman took it a little bit further. And I want to, and I told you I was going to do it last, last week, I want to bring it back inside the church. Because uh, while I believe and I am practicing, you know, have you ever had someone tell you you need to practice what you preach? You ever had anybody tell you that? Well, I need to practice what I've been preached to. And so I was taking notes during Brother Hobson's messages and Brother Perryman's message. And last night we had our leadership meeting. And, man, it was incredible. We had uh, Brother Jonathan uh, Ellingsworth. He has been a manager for six years at Chick-fil-A down in Dyersburg, Tennessee. And there are some incredible things that we learned about the culture of Chick-fil-A and how that culture that permeates everything they do. It, it, it's, it's absolutely needed inside the church as, as well. And uh, so I may even pick up some of the things that, that he mentioned. I was, I was writing notes left, left and right. And we're going to do that. But, you know, I, I would like to, to kind of say this. And, and tonight, I've got kind of a few different areas I want to jump to. I wanted to have a perfect outline that was just just perfect. I could hand it to you and you could walk away and, and, and preach it. I don't know that you'd be able to do that. I might jump a few places. But I am beginning to think about something, and that is, I think it is time for you and I to flip the, the way we view church. So many times we view our church, and, and let me just use uh, a Sunday. I know we have church on Wednesday and prayer meeting on Tuesday, and those are vitally important, and, and I'm not doing trying to do them a disservice by leaving them out. But just for the sake of my direction, I'm just going to talk about Sunday. All too often, we, we, we go through the week saying, if I can just get to Sunday, I can get refilled and I can make it another week, and maybe I won't go to hell during the week. Maybe if I can just uh, go through my job and kind of grit my teeth and grin and bear it, I can make it to Sunday, and we come to church, and we get a good touch of God, and we get a refilling. It's like going up to the gas station. We get a refilling, and we go all week, and it just kind of peters out, and then we come back on Sunday, and we go, I want to flip that script and, and while I am not trying to forget the saints, I believe we need to take our week and do everything we can to bring people to church on Sunday. It ought to be that everything we do during the week pushes towards that moment on Sunday morning or Sunday night where we can say we have brought someone into the presence of God and look what he is doing. You know, I, I, I have been very cognizant in my ministry that, that we don't get hung up on one group of people or the other. 
I believe that the church needs to be a well-rounded church, a well-balanced church. That's why we have different ministries. That's why we have Sunday school and children's ministries. That's why we have youth ministries. That's why we, we have Sunday morning services and Sunday night services. It's why we have Wednesday night services. There's a different, uh, uh, it gives us a different way to teach or to, or to preach or to, I can't do what I do on Wednesday nights on Sunday mornings uh, very often. And so we, we want that well-roundedness. I'm thankful for the saints of God. Let me just say that again just in case you missed it. I'm thankful for the saints of God. You are the backbone of this church. You are the, the, what, what allows this church to move forward. You are the foundation. And you know anything about building, if the foundation is removed, it's not stable. There are some churches that they are great with winning souls. But there's no foundation after that initial outpouring of the Holy Ghost or going down in the water. And, and that church is a weak church. It's a, it's a revival church, but there's no foundation. I'm thankful for solid saints of God that can, can sustain the church. But let me tell you, the foundation is good. But we got to wake ourselves up a time or two and say, I'm glad I'm a solid saint of God. But you know what, Pastor? It's okay if you don't preach to me today. In fact, if you don't preach to me this week, I will still live for God. Why don't you reach those? that are dying and lost and I'm okay if you feed them a little bit not in this church not in this church and I promise you it's not in this church but I have been to churches where, where, where someone said to me in the church why do you always keep preaching on Acts 2.38 we already know it I said because there's people out there that don't and I'm thankful this church doesn't get that I want to share with you a story and like I said, I'm going to jump a few places, but if you will, turn into, with me in the book of Luke chapter 19 and verse 1. And, and I'm not following the, the link 240 notes. If you wanted to entitle this, I would tell you to entitle it, The Outreach Within the Church. The Outreach Within the Church. It is important to reach your neighbor. It's important to, to reach your coworker. It's important to reach the guy that goes fishing or golfing with you or ladies go shopping with you. But there is also an outreach that must happen within these walls. And it is vital as well. Jesus uh, entered and passed through Jericho, Luke 19.1. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was chief among the publicans, and he was rich, and he sought to see, who Je he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not because of the press, for Zacchaeus was little of stature. So he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, say they, I don't want to be part of the they. I don't want to be them. But they saw it. And they all murmured. And they said that Jesus was going to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. Imagine that. The Messiah going to a sinner's home. Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of all of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I will restore him fourfold. This is a, a type of repentance. 
This was a precursor to what you and I see on the day of Pentecost. This was Zacchaeus saying, I am with this in the presence of the Savior. And there's something that's happening in my life. I've realized that I've not been living like I ought to live. And just something about being in the presence of Jesus, something about being where he is, caused Zacchaeus to repent. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come unto this house, for so much as he also is a son of Abraham. We know and find out later that, that a son of Abraham is absolutely a Jewish person, but it's also the Gentiles. And so that is not just saying he's part of the Jews. But watch verse 10. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. This, and I, I, I preach this, and I guess I, now that I'm thinking about it, I told you wrong. I preached the first Wednesday of, of May, and I kind of kicked it off with a burden that we need to do what Jesus desires. And if Jesus' desire is to see the lost saved, that needs to be our desire. If the passion of Jesus, if Jesus is seeking to save the lost, then going back to that sermon I preached at the beginning of this month when I said, seek ye first the kingdom, I would tell you today that we ought to seek first what Jesus himself is wanting. The Bible says Jesus seeks to save that which is lost. Jesus was all about the lost things. I think I ought to be too. You, you remember that, that, that parable in the Bible where, where uh, that servant came to the king and, and said, I, 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 am, you know, I am in arrears and, and I owe this debt. I cannot pay this debt. Is, I, there's no way. Even if I gave you all of the money for the rest of my life, I could not repay this debt. And so the king says, your debt's been repaid. And then that servant goes out and berates some poor guy that owed him a couple dollars and the king got mad. You know what I take out of that story? Just because you and I have been saved doesn't mean we just go our merry way and just do nothing. There is a purpose that you and I have because we are saved. We have got to seek out the lost. Let's look at Luke chapter 15. And uh, Luke chapter 15, and it's going to read a little bit like like this, uh, the, all the publicans and sinners drew near to hear of Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, and they said, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them, and Jesus spake this parable unto them, saying, so in this chapter, it's called the lost things, you have three lost things, you have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. So allow me to read it to you. Allow me to show it to you. What man among you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he puts it on his shoulders and he rejoices. And when he comes home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And then Jesus goes on to kind of zing that parable home. I say unto thee, that with likewise joy shall there be in heaven over the one sinner that repenteth, than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. 
Now, maybe this is kind of offensive, but can I tell you that as much as you make the Lord happy living for Him, and as much as your life of righteousness that God has imputed unto you and that you can walk in that newness of life and that newness of character after being saved, this tells me that as much as God is excited for your walk with God, there is something that gets God's motor running and that is when one more comes into a place of repentance, when one more comes into a place where they receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and that gets God excited. I don't want and I I know I'm way out of the Bible right now. This is Buford's version, and it's real dangerous, Brother Miller, when you start giving your own version of the Bible. But I just kind of think sometimes we bore God because there's no sinners being saved. There's nothing happening. And so I, I, I'd like to just, just hit on these lost things, and then I want to uh, go a little bit further. Then uh, he, he takes you a little bit further. He says, or what woman having ten pieces of silver... If she loses one piece, does not light a candle, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she finds it. When she has found it, she calleth the friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Do you catch that that very similar wording? And then you have the certain man that had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, give me the portions of good that falleth to me. And the man divided unto them his living. And many days, not many days after, the younger son gathered together, packed his bags, and took a journey into a far country. And there he wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land. And that young man, he began to be in want. He had, he had spent it all. He didn't have anything else. And so he went and joined himself with a citizen of that country. And that man sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. And he would have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. He didn't have any money. He didn't have any food. And he was eating the same thing that the pigs ate. By the way, he had no business being in the pig pen to begin with. He was a Jew. And it would have been just the lowest of low to take a job like that. And, and one day he's sitting there and he's thinking and he comes to himself. He thinks about it and he says, this don't make a lick of sense. Look at the servants that my father's house, those hired servants have bread to eat and despair. And here I am perishing with hunger. So I will arise and go to my father and I will say unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned before thee. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And so that young man arose and began to make that long trek home to his father. The Bible says when that young man was yet a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said, I've sinned against your father. I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe. Put it on it. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his, hand, on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Let's eat and be merry. For my son, which was dead, is now alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Then you have that elder son. Somebody preached on that very recently, that elder son. He doesn't understand how come my brother came home and you're making this big party. He, 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 didn't, you know, he spent all your money. He wasted his life. He's a sinner. 
The father comes out after he sees that son stewing over in the corner. He says, I know you're here. You can have everything you want. But we're going to be married because your brother was dead and his life again was lost and is found. The first two of the lost things tells us that heaven rejoices when someone is saved. The last tells us that you and I who have stayed in the house, you and I that have been saved, you and I that have received the goodness of God and we're blessed on a daily basis, there ought to be joy within us when someone else is saved. The lost sheep, some have said, was a willful lost. A sheep wanders away. A sheep says, oh, that piece of grass looks greener. That piece of grass looks good and just wanders away. And, and, and it's, it's their own activity and it's all of that. They say that the lost coin is something that doesn't realize it's lost. That lost coin has more significance than just being in a little coin purse. Those ten coins would have uh, been a, a decorative bangle, if you will, that a a betrothed person or or a bride when she was betrothed, part of her dowry, she would have had a a chain of these coins that would have lined her forehead. If you go look at some of the Bedouins, uh, uh, you can go go Google them. Look up a Bedouin lady, and you will see many times they've got these headdresses that have coins in them. And so this coin was not just any old coin; it represented her marriage. It was her dowry. It would have been the equivalent of a wedding ring. And as some of you maybe have experienced, you look down and your wedding ring, the diamond or one of the rocks in there has, has fallen and you become frantic. It's the same feeling she had as she turns her house upside down to find the one lost coin. The prodigal backslid. And I, I think there's some truth in this. The father didn't necessarily pursue him. Usually when someone backslides, they've got to make up their own mind to come back. But you know what was so incredible? Is that father was waiting. The, father, the Bible tells me that he, he, when, when that son was afar off. And the only way I can understand that is to know that that father on a daily basis was looking for his son. On a daily basis was anticipating his return. And was waiting saying, is this the day? Is this the time? And when that backslidden young man came back. And there was a repentant heart that was made known. That father, his love and compassion was instant. There was no I told you so. There was no cynicism. There was no, well, I I can't believe you have the gall to come back here after all that you've done. It wasn't any of that. It was as simple as my son who was dead is now alive. I've looked at all of those stories and, and I'm finding it. I just, I just keep seeing it. I can't escape it. That this is how God feels about the lost. It ought to be how you and I feel about the lost. I, I, I have a good, well it's a bad I guess, bad cynical streak in me. I, uh, I, don't, I don't struggle with anger too much. I've talked to some that do, and, and those of you that have struggled with emotions, you understand. I struggle with, with cynicism. I have to bury it deep. I have to repent daily. Because I'm the type, Brother Steve, that when somebody does something stupid, I kind of say you got what you deserved. Anybody ever thought that way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and if I'm not careful, 
that cynicism bleeds over into my walk with God. And I start looking at people that, that walk away or delve into sin and then they start finding themselves in the pig pen and this old nature rises up and says, you deserve that pig pen. Until I start reading the Bible. It's dangerous to read the Bible. You know why, Brother Bob, when you read the Bible? It's like staring into a mirror. And I read the Bible and I see that cynicism has no place. I told you so has no place. Instead, that love, that compassion, that joy when someone comes in, that awaiting, is this the day that they're going to walk through the door? And so I find a place and I bow my head and I say, Lord, God, I'm still not like you. As much as I sing, I want to be like you. And as much as I pray and as much as I preach that the ultimate goal is to be like him, I'm not like you yet. So God, sand the rough edges off. Soften this old ugly heart. Because God, you said you came to seek and to save that which is lost. And that has to be my passion too. And so you say, well, well Pastor, that sounds good. And thank you for the, the uh, uh, you know, motivational speech. But... How does that apply to the church? Well, if I'll find my notes that I moved right here, I'd like to take you to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6. And this is where I want to spend the next little bit. I'm not going to be uh, very long. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6 says this. And this is Paul speaking. Paul said, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his labor. And we are laborers together with God, for you are God's husbandry, you are God's building. And I begin to think about that. I, I've just, I, I, I begin to look at that some plant, some water, but only God gives the increase. In this church, the mindset is not so-and-so is a soul winner. It's so easy to look at Sister Kay or Brother Terry, who I know you've taught Bible studies. You do Bible studies on Wednesday uh, uh, morning, Sister Kay. It's so easy to say, Sister Kay, she is the soul winner of Lighthouse United Pentecost Church. And so it's up to Sister Kay to bring people to church. I'm the singer, I'm the preacher, I'm the musician, I'm the Sunday school teacher, but Sister Kay is the one that's going to that's gonna plant the seed and she's going to bring him and she's going to teach those Bible studies. But what I find out in the Bible is I find that the church of the living God is not made up of individuals, but it's made up, in fact they call it the body of Christ. And, and what's so amazing about the body of Christ is it works together. Did you know that? Did you know that your body works together? Did you know that you can't walk without a, a whole myriad of muscles and tendons and ligament and nerves and synapses in your brain firing? It all works together. If you don't believe me, then just go cut off a piece of your body and just leave it there on the side of the road and you won't need it. It's no big deal. 
I remember a couple years ago, Sister Buford had had pulled something and had a disc. I don't know if it was bulging or what, but uh, she had a, a horrid disc in her neck that had slipped out and it was the worst pain she had ever felt. There were nights that she would just scream all night long because of the pain. We went to the, 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 the doctor. We went to the, the sports medicine specialist because that's really what they were, were looking at. And I remember sitting in that, uh, that, that room and they were telling her. And they said, and they, they said, hold up your hand. And she held up her hand like this. And they said, now, we're going to touch your fingers. And which one of your fingers is numb? He said, well, it was, it's this finger. And the doctor said, because that is the finger that doesn't have the, the, the same feeling, it tells me it's that vertebrae in your neck. Because that finger is connected, whether it be nerves or tendons, whatever, it's connected to one vertebrae there. But my finger doesn't hurt. I understand that. But it's connected. Can I tell you today that in the church, you and I, we are connected. And while I may not go, I may not be able to go on your street and talk to your neighbor and I might not be able to go to your work and and teach a home Bible study in your work, the moment that you bring them into this church, it's no longer just you and that that person. It's now the church and God. I think we got to get to this place where if I meet someone in the, in the restaurant and I witness to them and they come to church, I'm so glad they came to church. But you know what makes me excited? When I'm sitting up here on the platform and someone I invited came to church and I see someone else talking to them. Because I'm not territorial. I don't go, hey, get away, that's my saint. Or that's my sinner that God's going to make a saint. That's my uh, uh, prize. That's my coup. I'm going to be able to put that scalp on my wall. No. There is a understanding in the church that some plant, some watereth, but God gives the increase. And so it brings me to this point. The outreach within the church. Some of the greatest places for you to uh, make a difference in the life of someone that is seeking for the Lord will happen in these pews. There was something really, and, and uh, I know we recorded it. I'll have to ask Brother, Brother Tim later uh, in what format we recorded everything. And, and, and if you missed it, we'll, it'll be on the website or something. But last night, our leadership uh, meeting and that we had, and it was so good. But they, they made the statement about Chick-fil-A. They said that Chick-fil-A, how many of you uh, go to Chick-fil-A and you've noticed that there is a complete difference in the people and the, and the, the, the friendships and the kindness you see behind the counter at Chick-fil-A than, say, the McDonald's? And I know I'm probably being mean to McDonald's, but it's true, all right? There's a teaching that they train at Chick-fil-A, and, and I, I remember when Brother Jonathan uh, Ellingsworth last night said this, it just clicked. He said that, do you know what Chick-fil-A serves? You ready? Chicken. That's all. We go to 54th Street. I like 54th Street. Because you know why? Because it's got a menu this big. You can have everything from a salad to tacos to a steak, or you can have a gyro, or you can have barbecue. And, and so you go to that, and you can have anything you want. You go to Chick-fil-A, you get chicken. You're going to either get it crispy, grilled, or spicy. And that's all. 
Oh, that's right. That's a brand new one. He mentioned that. Our barbecue chicken, it's a brand new one that they're coming out with. You know what the barbecue chicken is? It's the grilled chicken you didn't eat yesterday, and they just barbecued it. (laughs) But he made this statement. He says, when someone comes into Chick-fil-A, they want chicken. And so they're not worried about their menu because they know that person came because they want chicken. So they worry about the experience. Can I tell you when someone steps inside this church, they are already looking for God. When someone walks in this church, there is something that has already drawn them. We don't have to worry about what God does. What we have to worry about when someone walks into this church is the experience. Is there someone that is willing to shake their hand and say, I'm so glad you're here at Lighthouse. Uh, uh, If you don't have anybody to sit by, why don't you sit by me? You know, I've noticed that that you've been here a couple a couple times. Let me, when we were at, at Flow Valley or uh, First Apostolic Church FAC in Toledo, Ohio, my wife and I we were there four and a half years. We were we were on staff. We were um, the youth pastor there. I I did a lot of other things. I was probably most of the time the first one at church, and I was about the last one at church. And I remember. Uh, one, one Sunday morning, and it was a big church, about 350 people, so it was kind of hard to know everybody, and they had multiple entrances. And so it's easy, Brother Sorrels, for you to stand right there, and for the most part, you're going to see everybody that comes in. But there was about five different entrances. So if someone came in the west side, you may never really see them. But I remember I, I said, I'm going to meet somebody new. And so during that service, after that service, I went, and there was a, a young man about my age, and Went over there and I, I shook his hand. I said, I said, how you doing? My name's Brandon Buford. I'm the youth pastor. What's your name? My name's Doug. Man, that's awesome. I said, I just wanted to, to introduce myself. I just wanted to, to meet you and, and say, you know, how much I'm glad you're here. And I hope you come back. And, and, and is this your first time? You can ask Sister Buford. Doug said, well, I've actually been coming for three years. Now that's sad, and y'all go, yeah, Brandon, he's ADD, he missed it. And then Doug said this statement, no one's ever shaken my hand. No one's ever asked me to sit by him. Now I'm going to tell you right now, Doug has some fortitude that most people don't have. After about a month of that, they'd have been long gone, but Doug stuck. And I'm going to tell you, Doug's an incredible young man, and we talk every once in a while on Facebook, and he loves God with all of his heart. But right then and there, birthed something inside of me that says, I can never allow someone to just sneak in and sneak out. There is an outreach that must happen inside the church. And, and there is a teaching and there are programs and there are, I mean, we could have all of these systems and we probably need to do better. We've got greeters that greet and shake their hands and they get a connection card and, and when they fill out that connection card, it goes to Sister Sharon Smith and she sends them a, a little postcard that says, I'm glad you're here. There's some things that we teach and we build in, but what there needs to be inside of you and inside of me is just a burden. No one has to tell you what to do. You don't have to get training to do it. It's, hey, some water, some plant, but God gives the increase. You say, but I like my spot where I sit. I love my grandparents to death, and they are perfect 
in 99.999999% of the ways. Until one day my grandma looked at me and she said, I'm really glad this church is growing, but I really don't like it when they sit in my seat. Can I just tell you, Brand and Buford, I'm okay if they take my seat. I'm all right if I got to move down, move over, scrunch up, because some plant, some water, and God gives the increase. But this is not something that just happens. This is not something that most of us, our personalities are geared to that. I don't know if you've ever taken those personality tests, they're kind of fun. There's these personality tests, sanguine, melancholy, choleric. There's, there's another one. Somebody help me. Sanguine, melancholy, choleric. There's a fourth one. I can't remember. Phlegmatic. Um, melancholy, that's Eeyore. Hello. Uh, sanguine, they're the social butterflies. Choleric, they're the... Uh, they're, the, they're the, the type A personality. They're the boss, the leader. They run over you. You know, they just keep going. They, they're one-track mind, boom, you know, they're always result-driven. And, the, uh, the phlegmat- or, uh, the, the, and then the phlegmatic are just kind of a little easygoing. Well, I took a personality test a couple years ago, and uh, it said I don't like people. That's what my personality test said. My personality test said, Brandon, you need to go be a hermit in the middle of the forest and just forget about society. And <laughs> You know what I did? I hit my knees. I said, God, there's probably a little truth in this. God, there's no way that I can reach the lost unless I change who I am. I wrote in my book, my little book, and I, I don't remember who said it, but it said this. It says, are you willing to let Jesus change what you care about? Are you interested in transformation? We all have our, our kind of, these. this is what I care about. But if that don't match what Jesus cares about, are you willing to let Jesus change what you care about? And uh, it's uncomfortable to invite people. I think Brother Perryman said this last week. It's uncomfortable to invite people into your circle. Uh, Does anybody, I know some of you are social butterflies, but do any of you get the cold sweats when you have to meet somebody new? Some of you are like that, yeah. Just, I I just, it just, you know, sometimes it's just like, I don't know. I mean, if they don't fish or hunt or play golf, If they don't have those manly activities, it's real hard for me to connect with them. It's uncomfortable. But I got to thinking. Here I am. I'll be about a month and a half from turning 38 years old. And into my life where everything is mapped out and I got everything kind of like I want it. Zane's going into high school, Lord help me. Zoe's pretty independent. If I need to run to the store, I can leave them at home. And and, and they can feed themselves. And in my perfect world, we're introducing a baby. Crying. Jonah cried earlier when I held him and I started having heart palpitations. 
I'll forget which one of the babies it was. I held them the other day and they spit up on me. And I start that dry heaving, gagging stuff. Thank you so much, moms, for not letting me have an opportunity to change your baby's diapers. We babysat some, some of our nieces and nephews and their infants are, are toddlers and they cry all night and so I've had that taste of no sleep, that taste of fatigue. But that's what you have to go through if you want to birth a baby. That comes with the territory. And if a church is going to be consistent in birthing babes in Christ... There's going to be some uncomfortable things. There's going to be some uncomfortable moments. There's going to be some fatigue. There's going to be some crying. There's going to be some bottles. But it's worth it because we know what's happening later. The church needs to be a place of outreach. When someone walks to this this front and and you know when, when we've had a service I'm blessed because usually I'm on the platform for most all of the services and all through them and so all through the service from the worship to the end of the altar call I, I'm able to watch everybody and I'll watch people they'll come in this in this place tears roll down their face the entire service I mean roll down their face this entire service the pastor or whoever's preaching gives the altar call and they sit there in their pew and they sob and they cry and not one person went and talked to them about it. They may have no idea what's going on. They may have no idea what they're feeling. They've been to church all their life, anywhere else, and they've never been moved like this. And there's a little uh, fear when it comes to that. What is it going to be? I'm trying to tell someone the greatest moment of outreach might be when you get out of your pew and you go to them and you simply say, uh, you, you either ask them to come to the front with you or maybe you just say, may I pray with you for a moment or possibly you just stand beside them and worship and let your worship rub off on them and watch what God happens. Some of the greatest outreach happens inside the church. How many of you remember that story in the Bible of the Jesus? And they, everybody, they were hungry. The disciples said, how are we going to feed all these thousands and thousands of people? And Jesus breaks the bread and he multiplies it. And he feeds thousands upon thousands of people with just a few loaves and a few fishes. Incredible story, right? Amazing, just miraculous what God can do. But can I tell you today that as as that God, God is the only one that has the miraculous ability. God is the only one that can take nothing and create something. And I'm convinced that that day God would not have allowed them to go hungry. But that miracle has some more players that we don't give enough credit to. Some water, or some plant, some water, God gives the increase. It started, I believe it was Andrew, I think it was, it was the disciple Andrew. He was looking around and he was saying, man, how are we going to feed these people? And he happened to notice a little boy holding a lunch pail. I honestly don't know what Andrew, what, what was going through Andrew's mind. In my imagination, in my, my just kind of assumption, Brother Mike, I assume that he was going to ask that little boy to give his lunch to Jesus so Jesus wouldn't be hungry while he talked. 
That's the only thing that makes any sense to me. And so Andrew looked at that little boy and he said, Jesus has need of your lunch. Would you mind if, if Jesus, you know, the one that's been, te- would you mind if Jesus took your lunch? That little boy said, absolutely. I would gladly give my lunch to Jesus. And so Andrew and perhaps that little boy walk to Jesus and they hand it to Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus opens it up and it's five loaves and two, three fishes or two fishes. My brain's starting to go different directions right now. And he holds that up. He blesses it. And he breaks it. And he sticks it back in the basket. What did he tell the disciples? Start handing it out. Can I tell you today that you may never, you, you may never teach a, a 16-week Bible study and on that 16th week in their home that person says I'm ready to get baptized and so you go out to their spa in the back and you take the cover off the spa and you baptize that person in Jesus' name right in their backyard and they come up out of the water after you taught them a 16-week Bible study and they're speaking in other tongues. That may never happen to you. But there's plenty of little boys. There's plenty of people in this church that says here's what I can do. Here's a lunch. And the Lord takes it and he breaks it and he multiplies it. And then he hands it out. Do you see all the different people that had a hand in that miracle? Now the only miraculous thing came from the Lord. But the distributing and the getting of that miraculous miracle to all of the people went through the hands of disciples. Some water, or some plant, some water, only God gives the increase. What could you bring to church? That the Lord might be able to take it, break it, bless it, and multiply it. What could you do when you walk into these, this building? What could you do that would make a difference in someone's eternal life? I'm glad you're saved. I really am. And I, I think we ought to... We ought to do a little bit like they say. I've never quite understood it. But we ought to do like they do in the airlines when you're going to crash. And the, and the oxygen masks come down. And what do they say? Put it on yourself first before you try to put it on someone else. It would be good for you to be saved before you try to save anybody else. It would be good for you to experience the gift of the Holy Ghost and experience that repentant heart and experience the baptism of Jesus' name. Because if you do that, you'll have a testimony like none other. But what are you doing in the church to change someone's life? I'm not discounting the outreach. I'm not discounting the Bible studies and all of those we've got to have. But every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, every Tuesday night, every time we have anything in this church on a a, a fall festival or our back to school, what are you doing to reach the lost in this church? A handshake, a greet, sitting by someone, taking a moment to explain what they're feeling. You don't have to have a PhD in theology. Surely you feel the presence of God when you come to church. Just tell them, this is what I felt when I came to church. This is what I'm feeling right now. There's nothing deep. It's even as far as you know you're going to go out and eat somewhere. Saying, hey, we're going to go get a bite to eat. Would you like to join us? 
We're all paying for our own. You don't have to pay for theirs. You can be upfront about it. We're all paying for our own. But we'd love for you to go out to eat with us and just sit around and talk. Because I guarantee as you sit around that, that table, somewhere there's going to be some bread broken. And God's going to begin to give the increase. It's just a little planning you did. It's just a little watering. But watch what God does when everybody works together. Would you stand tonight? I want us just to lift our hands. And I believe that, that through this kind of jumbled sermon that jumped around a few different places, I believe the Lord's speaking to you. Because here's, here's what I'm firmly convinced. I believe that this burden and this, this desire has been falling on people long before we started doing this. You just didn't quite know how to go about it. But right now, God's beginning to confirm some things with you. And God's beginning to talk to you. What can, what can you do? To reach those when they walk in this church. What can you do? Father, right now as we begin to play and as we begin to sing for the next just few moments, I'm asking, I've, I've preached the word. I've done what I can do. I'm asking now that you would begin an individual work. I'm praying right now that you would step into the, the foyer of every one of our hearts. You'd begin to guide us and direct us. Lord, we're all part of the body. And, and maybe next Sunday our job is the watering or maybe it's the, maybe it's the planting. I don't know. But God, if we'll just do our part, you're going to begin to give the increase. And we're going to see salvation begin to happen in Jesus' name. Would you just, you're more than welcome to come up to the front. I just want you to find a place to pray, whether you're standing or kneeling or stepping out. I don't really care how you pray. But would you just take a few minutes and would you begin to pray and let the Lord speak to you in Jesus' name. The